listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today, it is late in the evening on Monday, the 14th of June in Seoul, and late afternoon in Italy, where I am joined via Zoom by today's guest, Ms. Carla Vittantonio, to join us about working for and with disabled people in North Korea. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you all to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this podcast with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every single day. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. So to introduce my guest today, Carla Vitantonio is a humanitarian professional, author and activist, a feminist and an advocate for human rights. She has published two books, Pyongyang Blues and Myanmar Swing, which until now are only available in Italian, as far as I know. Carla worked with Handicapped International, now called Humanity and Inclusion, for two and a half years in North Korea as the country director. She now works in Cuba as country director for Care International, the International Humanitarian Agency based in Geneva. Thank you for joining me on the show, Carla. Thanks to you, Jaco. Your journey into humanitarian work is interesting. Uh, I think you were originally a diplomat, weren't you? Uh, more or less, yes. I, I, I did the diplomatic studies. And when uh -huh. I first arrived to North Korea, I was sent as an antenna from the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And uh -huh. I stayed there for one year and a half before joining Handicap International. Okay. And how did you make that choice to leave the foreign ministry and, and go full on into humanitarian work? I think that the experience in the field drove me towards this decision. I felt, although I was dealing with uh, development cooperation with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Italy, I felt that, uh, and I know it may sound strange, but working with an NGO in the PAK could be more effective. Mm. And when the position with HI opened, I applied. I had already some experience in working with disability in Italy and abroad. Uh, Italy is one of the first countries to propose, sign and ratify the UN Convention for the Right of Persons with Disabilities. So yeah. th there was a lot of conversation and discussions and debate in my country uh, when mm. I was still working here. So I felt HI could be a good place for me and maybe my knowledge could be helpful. Okay, that's a great answer. Now, altogether, you lived and worked in the DPRK for four years. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit more than four years. It's correct. And when did that period begin? I arrived, um, so I won the position a few days before the, the, the death of Kim Jong-il. So uh, just ah. at the beginning of December 2011, and mm -hmm. I was uh, ready to depart. But of course, we have to delay. You may yeah. remember that at that point, there were very little news about the DPRK, what was happening. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, there were the Arab Springs, yeah. and some were asking themselves if these could have any impact in the PRK, for example, there right. were rumors that university had been closed. This was actually true. It was true because of the, of, of the mourning of, of the, 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 the death of the departed uh, leader. So yeah. at, at the end, uh, everything was, was delayed of about seven months. And I could arrive in July 2012. And uh -huh. I departed, I still remember, because I departed the 23rd of July with the semi-famous flight that took fire on air uh, oh. between Pyongyang and Beijing, yes. <laughs> Why did the flight catch fire? Uh, yeah, so 2016 was the year. The the plan, the, the uh, there was a, there was a, a problem in one of the engines, uh, that's uh -huh. what I remember, and yeah. we did an emergency landing in Shenyang. Gee. Yeah, so it, it, it was something very peculiar because at the beginning some some news reported it, and then of course this information was uh, disappeared from the internet. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, so I was on that flight. That was my farewell to DPRK. There's there's a lot of talking about this being on purpose for me, but I'm afraid that was not so <laughs> important. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's certainly a. Uh, an interesting way to uh, to end your time uh, in the country. Definitely. 
Were you the first uh, resident person for Handicap International in the DPRK? No, Handicap International has a very long history of uh, resident as a resident NGO. So this mm -hmm. happened more or less around the year 2000 for all the NGOs that were working in DPRK. At the beginning, there were many more, including very famous and respectable one like MSF. You may yep. know that there is a Medicine Sans Frontier. Yes, and there is a report, a very critical report written by MSF when they decided to depart from, from mm. North Korea. It's a very it's a very interesting document, although it's very impacted by the very radical point of view of MSF on humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were many, many NGOs during the tough years of the famine. And uh, then after 2006, only six remained. And this was uh -huh. Handicap International was one of these. So there always was uh, at least one resident expatriate in uh -huh. the golden era there were many more many many right. many more for every ngo and my time there was a funny law a funny non-written law that yep. was uh, one million one expatriate one million budget uh -huh. one expatriate allowed it was not exactly uh -huh. true uh, it was right. one expatriate allowed for a different field of operation. So yep. for example, in HI, I was responsible for um, institutional support to KFPD and mm -hmm. I was the country director. And there was one more expert that was responsible for the rehabilitation project. And it was the ah. second expert, but we were two. Okay, now before we go on, we should explain to our listeners that, uh, so your uh, partner organization uh, for Handicap International was the Korean Federation for the Protection of the Disabled. That's the KFPD that you referred to uh, just a minute ago. Yes. And in fact, it was the KFPD uh, that explicitly uh, invited HI to join yes. uh, to enter the DPRK back in 2000. Is that right? Uh, it is very correct, Jaco. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is very interesting. It says a lot about the needs and strategic interests in the era of human rights of DPRK at the beginning of the 2000s. Let's never forget that until a certain point, both in China and in the DPRK, the official version was that there's no person with disability there. So mm. in the moment, there is an association for the protection of the disabled, and this association asks for some kind of help that we may translate in financial help or institutional support or whatever, this yep. is an acknowledgement of the existence of a certain side of the population. So we right. were invited by the KFPD. The beginning, it was a sort of consultancy. And then the structure of resident NGOs was created, not only for HI, of course, and HI took part into it. Do you happen to know when the KFPD was formed as an organization? I, I will lie. I knew that, but now it's all blur blurred in my mind. I think 1998. Okay, so it was at, at least a year before uh, yeah. your organization was invited to go in. Yeah, this is, uh, however, it is a public information. I'm almost sure that on any website, for example, ah. of the Paralympics where the KFPD participated, there is a yep. paragraph on the, yeah. So tell us a bit about, well, uh, the organization of the KFPD. Are there, uh, in fact, disabled people working within the KFPD? I think that a, a prologue to this answer is uh, the motto and the dilemma that is uh, lying at the, at, the, at the very core of any law or any framework regarding persons with disability. That is what we say, nothing about us without us. So persons mm -hmm. with disability of the world fairly say that it should be them to take decision on their life and rights and duties. Yeah. The very principle of representation that we also apply to race or to gender or to any other sensitive issue in this, in this moment in the world. So mm. you and, and for this reason, when we are talking about organizations working on disability, we make a difference between DPOs that are disabled people organization, that is organization mm -hmm. exclusively or mainly done by yeah. uh, and composed by and of people with disability and DA, Disabilities Association or Disability Friendly Association or support or allies that are associations yeah. and organizations where there are or there are not persons with disability, but there are advocates and friends and allies. Mm. In this sense, KFPD is rather 
an, an association of allies, although mm -hmm. there are persons with disabilities working within the KFPD, and this number is increasing slowly, slowly. My point on this in that is that um, because of the very constitution of KFPD that at the beginning was limited to people with visual impairment, people mm. with hearing impairment, and people with physical impairment. These three kinds of impairment are the only one present within the staff of KFPD as of today. Mm -hmm, so there's okay. no person with intellectual impairment, for example, not that I know. Right. Uh, when, um, when HI, uh, formerly Handicapped International, now Humanity and Inclusion, when it went into uh, the DPRK, what was its aim? The aim of HI in general, the mission of HI, which is written in the uh, statute and in their website, is to be at the side, support and witness the, the, for the rights of persons with disability. So that's more in general. Translating into the DPRK contest, I think the first objective of HI, which really fascinated me, and that's the main reason why I joined them, was to support the KFPD to become independent in their institutional capacities, including, including fundraising capacities. Mm. In order to be them the first and utmost advocate for the person with disability, even internally, and I would say before all internally, within their own government and people. And this said, there is always in every country a transition moment that is upheld by HI as an organization. So a moment where HI provides uh, direct support or sides their partner organization in direct support. For example, in rehabilitation, there was a moment where HI trained technicians in prosthetics and orthotics mm. or uh, physiotherapists or provided material to build prosthetics and orthosis. The idea, I'm I, I, speaking at the present because this is a strategy that usually HI uses to go um, decreasing their direct support yep. until the partner organization in the country is completely independent. I say mm. it's enchanting because this is one of the main principles that are driving the NGOs that are working on decolonization today. So um, it, it, I think it's very important and it's very enlightening the, the idea that somebody in HI 25 years ago thought that in DPRK this could take place. Yeah. Wow. How was the um, the working relationship between uh, yourself as an expat and the local staff who were presumably seconded to you from the KFPD? In general, I would say that we are all human. So it was yeah. a human relation with ups and downs, <laughs> with the cold of the winter and uh, the, the tea warmed up continuously because uh, it would help us getting through the day. And yeah. uh, with the field trips that needed two weeks uh, notice uh, to be approved and that were at the same moment, they were interesting, funny and in involving adventures and also difficult moment of cultural exchange. Uh, so yeah. I have beautiful memories of all mm. the local staff I had in my four years and some in, 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 in yeah. DPRK. And I think that what I would say is that the main trait of our relation was the continuous attempt of each of the parties to go towards the other without betraying the principles that were behind us. Mm. Did you uh, see anything in your four, year, four plus years in, in the DPRK that confirmed the stories that are often told that people with physical disabilities are sent to live in rural villages to keep Pyongyang aesthetically pure? I don't know if before my arrival this was ever true, but I mm -hmm. can witness, uh, I have pages of my diary uh, saying yeah. that, for example, one day I was walking in the very center of Pyongyang under my favorite yep. monument, that we would, with little reference, called the dentist. There was the party monument. Oh, with the the, the three, uh, yes. with the, the hammer yes. and the sickle and the brush. Yeah. So mm. the, the foreigners would call it the dentist. So this this under this monument, there were two deaf people signing very clearly, and huh. it, the first time I saw this, it struck me 
but it was it was maybe 2013 2014 so it was not even at the end of my permanence there so i would say that's not true that that's definitely not true um and also there is in the very center of pyongyang a center for children with intellectual impairment i don't have any proof that this is this is any and uh, this is true did you see any people in wheelchairs in north korea in pyongyang yeah definitely definitely mm -hmm. Of okay. course, and also blind people using the stick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is very visible. So uh, the truth is that, and this is something that I try to point out every time we talk about access. When we speak mm. about physical access, Confucian-influenced architecture is is complex because architecture yeah. is in former confucian asia has very clear laws on the distance that you need to have from the low floor to the to the threshold and on 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 some on some on, on so many things that don't make access very easy so for example in the universities there were students with physical disabilities but it was impossible mm. for them to to climb at first floor so uh, right. it, it's true that many times, rather than bringing them up with the wheelchair, they would yeah. be brought by person and just sat right. on a normal chair. So, so they would be carried on somebody's back up the stairs. Yeah. 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 Yes. You uh, A few minutes ago, you mentioned that uh, you had to give two weeks notice when you went on a field trip. I'm guessing then, uh, as a resident foreigner, that you were able to visit facilities for children and adults with disabilities in all the various provinces of the DPRK? Yes, this, this, uh, I thank you for these questions because mm. first it allows me to say that uh, the notice is something very common for us in many, many countries. In Myanmar, I had a three weeks notice and I had a lot of areas where I could not access anyway. Mm. In Cuba, same thing. I don't have restrictions of access, but I have a three weeks notice. Three weeks, okay. That's quite long. Yes, and and you know, with COVID, it's maybe five months that I don't go to the field. Uh, yeah. Ethiopia is the same. So mo the more we go ahead with the, the decolonization of aid, the more governments request to control aid and, and development cooperation. We may like it or not, but this idea mm -hmm. of asking for permission is more and more common. So in North Korea, it was two weeks, but there was one thing to say that resident NGO would abide by the law. It's, it's, it's a law, it's a norm, no? that we say no access, no aid. So we would not mm. give support to any institution or place or location if we could not check by ourselves the condition yeah. and monitor and monitor regularly. So I would support six out of the nine provinces of the country and I visited all of them. Uh -huh. Was that because the other three provinces were not open to you for visits? So the province of North Hamgyong mm, yes. is accessible. And in fact, until 2010, 2013, some NGOs were still going there. However, because of the road condition, it became more and more unsustainable because mm. KECA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs body that was in charge of NGOs, forbade staying away in the weekend. Ah. So slowly, slowly, all the provinces, all the NGOs left North Hamgyong because it was impossible to go on a Monday and return on a Thursday. While right. WFP would still go to North Hamgyong because they were allowed to stay out for the weekend and they would mm. do base in Hamhong, in South Hamgyong. Yeah. So ah, yes. That's the case of North Hamgyong. The case of the remaining two provinces is a little bit more complex. Officially, it is because of the presence of strategic factories and mines mm. and any other, I would say. As I did not go there, I, I cannot infer, but we would not yep. go there because of recommendation of the government. Right. And uh, on the uh, the site visits that uh, the places that you did go to, what were you able to see and do there? Several things. Maybe I can mention that one time in Hamung, I trained a group of statisticians, so people coming from the 
planning department uh, on the uh, sample survey that they were going to conduct on people with disability in South Hamgyong province. So I trained them, for example, on how to talk to persons with disability without being offensive. Uh, and mm. on uh, the famous Washington group set of questions, that is a set of six questions yeah. that is used worldwide in census to understand if persons with disabilities are answering or exist within a census. Uh -huh. So that, that was an interesting experience. I named this because that's something that maybe it's, it's unusual if we think about the DPRK. So I yeah. deliver direct training. Uh, otherwise, monitoring would be, say, we were in a rehabilitation hospital, so seeing at how the machinery were used, yeah. meeting the persons that have been trained before, maybe in other countries, for example, we trained on as technician of prosthesis and orthosis, we say PNO technician, several people in Vietnam. So it's important to meet these people and to see how they train their peers in the, in the DPRK, how they use the, the, the machinery and the, the inputs that we, we give them. Other thing, for example, schools of children with disability, witnessing a lesson and seeing if the training that they receive from our consultant have their effect if they apply the techniques that we share and on the side of the hardware if everything is in place it's used etc for example in the schools we would at a certain point we decided to buy uh, to build greenhouses that's very mm -hmm. interesting because they could improve their access to quality food yeah so it was good to go there in different seasons and see how they were applying the uh, suggestions and advice and training that another NGO had done for us, no? because of course HI did not have technical capacities in agriculture. So we asked mm. colleagues from other NGOs to, to be consultants. This. It was very interesting. Of course, this is, uh, uh, I'm mentioning schools, I'm mentioning institutions, rehabilitation hospitals, um, and that's, that's the most of what I visited in terms of institution, but then there's the trip. So imagine that when you go from Pyongyang to Hamung, yes. you stop over in Wonsan in Kangwong by night. So yep. there's a lot you can see and a lot of people you can see and, and a lot of observation on the status of persons with disability in all the way through from Pyongyang to Hamung, no? Mm. If you meet any, if you see any, and uh, that was very interesting for me. Do you read and speak Korean? Not as well as I would like to, but good enough to understand if they were cheating in monitoring. <laughs> well, that, that goes halfway to answering the next question, which was, did that help you uh, or hinder you at all in your work in the DPRK? I, uh, I have the maybe arrogance to say that I've been there for so long in a such transparent way that at a certain point, my minder, no, what we call the liaison officer, yes. knew that I would do no harm. Mm -hmm. So I, I was more free than maybe other colleagues. I will make an example. I, would, I was free to jog in one sun when I was sleeping there. Mm. So because they knew I was only jogging, no? so, yeah. and I would not make strange questions or, or stop somewhere or go into forbidden place. Uh, so to this extent, I would say that at my time, I cannot say if it is still the case. At my time, it was not well seen that the resident NGO people would speak Korean. Mm. So officially, I would not speak Korean. However, it was acknowledged and known that I knew Korean and that uh, there was some exchange informally. But for example, when we would go, I, I clearly remember one time we were in a school and I asked a question and my translator, that was a lady with whom I had a very ho honest as much as possible and, and transparent relation. Yep. She, uh, she translated my question in such a way that it would contain the best answer. I, I don't know if I'm explaining mm -hmm. myself. Right. So it, it would elicit only the, the answer, which is good. Yes. So I would say, for example, yeah. what do you do to support the children? And she would translate, do you support the children by putting the desk in this and this way? So this, ah, yes. this is not a translation. This is a giving yeah. a hint. So I stopped. Yeah. And I took at the side my translator and I said, please, I, 
I don't want to make a scandal. So now we go back mm. to the table and you translate my question. And if they don't have an answer, nothing bad happens. Well, I need yeah. the honest answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a, a great strategy. Uh, do it uh, quietly uh, instead of publicly. Yeah. I, I think that uh, one thing that I really learned in my diplomatic, uh, short diplomatic pattern yes. is that at the end, what we want is to reach our objective, no, no matter yeah. how we, we reach it. And in this case, it was the good of children with disabilities. So, of course, my ego wanted to make a big scandal and shout that I yeah. had spotted the betrayal, but it would be mm. of no use. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, you write in your profile uh, that you are a feminist. Uh, did you face any challenges living and working in the DPRK as a woman? Uh, I, for example, I heard from one woman recently who lived there for two years that she, she found it was unusual even to see a woman driving a car by herself in the DPRK. So that means that when she was driving alone, she felt very visible and sometimes maybe strange, mm. uh, you know, she got strange looks from North Koreans. So uh, there are several, several levels of answer. There's a normative, a legal answer. DPRK has a socialist, although they changed the name, a socialist-based constitution, mm -hmm. like old socialist-based constitution written in the 40s and 50s. The principle of gender equality is a state in the constitution mm. and is applied to all realms. So legally, uh, there is no barrier to women accessing any level of uh, education and career uh, uh, satisfaction and that's on the law okay mm. in the reality and this is written in a very beautiful book uh, that is written by a south korean author whose name i don't remember but i i can send it to you in the in the in private uh, oh, later. Please, yeah. in, in in general what happened in north korea is the same thing that happened in china in cuba and russia mm. so in these countries where a socialist constitution state equality that is that women started a double charge so without leaving the complete burden of mm. household course and children uh, grow up and all these things they also took some extra charges like working outside etc yeah. etc while men did not take the responsibility of any of the informal um, duties that the the woman need to perform in a day and yeah. that is the reason why despite uh, legal equality not so many women in North Korea access higher education and higher uh, position in the working mm. realm. So it, it's a matter of culture, it's not a matter of law. As okay. of the as assertion of my colleague, I would say that it's very unusual to see anybody driving a car in Korea mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there are so few cars. So, sure. and that it's not so unusual to see a woman driving a bus in North Korea. Mm. And that most possibly this colleague was looked at strangely because she was a foreigner, man or woman, no, no, no matter what, because we are still a curiosity in, in DPRK. So sure. I, I, I would say that all considered the topic of gender in the DPRK, although there's, there's really a lot to do, is not the worst ever I've seen in the global south. Mm. And this okay. said, I also person personally gave a gender training in the DPRK, and it was a funny experience, and it was mm. somehow welcome, yes. Well, tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> so it was part, I was a gender focal point for HI. Uh, HI, uh, unfortunately, they were very good at disability, but gender was a little bit left behind. So at a certain point, yeah. it was a working group and I was part of the steering committee. So I decided as a champion to promote gender training in my in my program. And in this way, I wanted really a basic gender training to raise some attention on gender stereotypes in culture, in, in any culture. So in this case, in DPRK culture and system. So it was mm -hmm. an internal training that I gave to all the KFPD staff and KKA staff that I had oh, yes. and including HI staff. So it was a very limited experience, but it was, it was very, very interesting because it was very clear that they would see that if 
we don't deny to them what they consider that they have fairly, like for example, equality on, by the law, they are able to look at the fact that some things can be improved and mm. that other culture may have a different approach to gender. Yeah, it does sound like a fascinating experience. During your time in the DPRK, you worked together with the KFPD in the revision and updating of the Korean disability law, uh, which was updated after the signing of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People persons with disabilities. Uh, and then you also participated in the second sample survey on disability in 2014. And then you supported the process for the ratification of the uh, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So that's quite an amazing feat. Tell us a little bit about that experience in updating the law on the protection of disabled people. It was an exciting experience because we could see how the KFPD was doing the subtle and but intense work of lobbying with their mm. own government, uh, sometimes made by choosing the right word, because in such a sensitive contest, the wrong word can hinder a whole process. Yeah. So, for example, it was impossible to speak about advocacy, but it was very good to speak about support, institutional support. Mm. So uh, it was interesting. So the KFPD did this work of um, up updating the national law by themselves and uh, we had a few meetings where they would update me and I would give my point of view on some issues and then at the end they provided me with a non-official translation you know that when there is a law after a few months after the law is, is ratified there is an official English translation that needs right. to be approved so I got a non-official translation and on this non-official translation I gave my official HI inputs yes. and some were uh, some were included some uh, were not which is uh, fair and uh, after the law was published and right and um, approved by the supreme assembly and that was a big success in the the law um, on the protection of disabled people is there any distinction made between people with intellectual and physical disabilities um, I think that uh, the big success is that people with intellectual disabilities are recognized as such mm. because previously they were not. Ah. A long time ago, as some colleague may, may point out, the only disabled persons in North Korea were officially soldiers, no? That were, yeah, soldiers who lost an arm or a leg or an yes, eye in, in an accident. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And then we started uh, acknowledging that there are also blind or deaf uh, or people with a physical impairment that did not uh, would go to the war. And, yeah. and then finally, in 2014, intellectual impairment appears in the law. This is very important. Although in the census 2012, which is, as long as I know, uh, the last census uh, in the DPRK, oh, 2008, mm -hmm. sorry. So I'm going a little bit into technicalities. So there is a set, uh, the famous Washington group set of questions. It's six mm -hmm. questions. These questions are related to all kinds of disabilities, but there are, there are especially two that allow the interviewer to understand if we are talking about intellectual impairment. So these ah. two questions were not undertaken by the census. Mm. That's the same in China. And the same in Myanmar, if uh, if this can be of any interest. So it's not the mm. uniqueness of DPRK. It's yeah. very common in, in, in Asian context. Uh, it's difficult to acknowledge intellectual impairment, sometimes also for religious matters. Uh, so in the DPRK in 2014, they started to acknowledge by, by mentioning this in the law, which is a big victory. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What about... Um children born with Down syndrome in the DPRK. Um, do you know anything about how they were seen or how they were treated uh, mm. before this update in the law? There's a lot of speculation on this. Mm. I can, there's a lot of speculation on intellectual impairment in the DPRK and there are uh, very important governments that at a certain point started to inquire about this. So what I can tell you as usual is what I saw. Yeah. Mm. So what I saw, in Pyongyang is a center for children with intellectual rehabilitation, Korean Rehabilitation Center 
for the children with disabilities. And it includes children with Down syndrome, children mm -hmm. with uh, cerebral palsy, oh, and, yes. uh, children with other kind of disability or impairment. I can also say, and this is something, uh, I think it's the first time that I mention it publicly, but it's something that always filled me with uh, a feeling of compassion and, uh, and also admiration with parents uh, of, of, for parents with, of children with disability. When I was visiting mm. schools for blind or deaf children, sometimes uh, there were children that were patently not deaf. Mm -hmm. or meaning that the fact that they would not hear you literally did not derive from the fact that they were deaf but derived from an intellectual impairment ah. uh, so these apparently wrong diagnosis mm -hmm. in a context of deep need like context of the global south of like dprk coming from a very deep depression uh, it's an act of courage because children with disability that were enrolled in institutions they may have very little but they did have something every day yeah so for parents living in a poor situation it was important to guarantee to their children at least a meal per day so institutions like this would save their children and and i think you know like it's very important to, to recognize that these children somehow were hosted there mm. without any problem, although they were categorized like deaf. Yeah. How was the uh, the process of ratifying the UN Convention, uh, the uh, Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities? I, I would say that uh, it was foreseen to be something like a bit of a firework and mm -hmm. you know with a lot of exploits but because it happened in summer 2016 summer or autumn 2016 then in the moment where also there were other priorities in both in the dprk agenda and also in the u.s agenda yeah. let's say which is very important for the dprk maybe it did not have all the fireworks that it deserved mm. but uh, within the dprk it was prepared it was already one year before talking to the vice chairman of kfpd at that time he was telling me we do want to ratify the government is willing to ratify we are not ratifying mm -hmm. it because we cannot comply with what ratifying the the convention means in terms of obligation because mm. you know that once country ratifies they have obligation the reports the shadow reports the changing of the law but yeah. this is the minimum that the changing of practices this needs budget so it was prepared and then it happened and then the visit of the the, the, the representative from the UN also took place and everything was very quick so mm. uh, I think it would have deserved a little bit more of show, maybe, no? Right. Now, one does not normally associate uh, the DPRK with ratifying international conventions on human rights. Uh, in fact, many people in the human rights community would argue that, on balance, the North Korean government is perhaps a, a bigger abuser of rights than a protector of them. How do you respond to such arguments? So I, I will give maybe the answer from a diplomatic point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that in general, in the world, in the global south and in the global north, states use the ratification of Convention on Human Rights as a leverage in their agenda. And that's not only DPRK. I could mention all the countries where I've been working and many of the countries that fund my organizations. No, mm. So in this case, DPRK is a ratifier of the UN Convention for the Persons with Disability and also of, for example, ratified the Convention for the Protection of the Children, of the yeah. Child. I, I don't remember the... So one would argue, okay, that's the basics, but it's also a leverage in the global agenda for DPRK to walk um, some opening without touching topics that are maybe danger considered dangerous for the existence of the status quo. Uh, I'm not defending this attitude. I'm saying that's very common among states to do this. Let's, for example, think that Myanmar is the third most contaminated country by 
anti, anti by my minds and it is a country that did not sign any convention against the use of man of mines oh, so yeah. uh, I, i'm sorry yes yeah, so it's 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 really very very common I, I, we may not like it and on the other hand we may say that many countries sign and ratify and then do not perform that's another mm. problem that we have as, as human rights activists <laughs> Do you see a distinction between human rights promotion work and humanitarian work, or do they overlap uh, almost completely? No, definitely they don't overlap. Actually, for a, a few years, I, I took away the word activist from my resume, resume mm. because um, as I was telling you before, I do believe that when you start working in the field, uh, you want to support the people that are in front of you. And in order to make them be better, you may renounce to your role of being an activist and denounce what you see. Because you, would, you, you may find out that it's not so useful to reach your goal. Mm. So we as humanitarian, we have to be clear with the principles that are guiding us, that are humanity, neutrality, independence, impartiality, and doing no harm. This said, there's a difference between being an activist and being a humanitarian. Um, since I started this work, I don't go to the street to demonstrate anymore. And I miss it a little bit, but mm -hmm. I do think at this moment, it's not so useful for, for what I want to, to reach. Yeah. To what extent is it possible uh, to work together with the North Korean government to improve the lives of ordinary DPRK citizens? Uh, while you know political and social freedoms are very weak <laughs> so you know you live in korea so you 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 see you know the the flag of south korea uh, it says yeah. everything about our life you know and i think this is the answer we are not on a black or white uh, picture it's a scale of grace i'm sorry if i recall uh, a cheap book but that's that's the reality so i uh -huh. um i do think that when you are a humanitarian and you go to a country that needs support you will never achieve perfection in your goal there's always a certain type of negotiation and you will always have to give up on something and that is why in certain situations NGOs decide to leave the country it was the mm. case of Sri Lanka no after the Tamil war uh, and yeah. some NGOs decided that it, it was impossible that the compromise that they need to reach was too much so mm -hmm. for and that's that's I, I say it many times and maybe we, we we want to say it somewhere officially of course this is my personal opinion it's not hi opinion and it's not care opinion right. my opinion of carla vitanto is that in the dprk there was room to work for persons with disabilities i cannot mm -hmm. say for every vulnerable group but there was room to work for persons with disabilities it was a good open window no matter for which reason yeah in in 2014, there was this sample uh, survey on disability that you uh, participated in. Uh, what did you learn from that? Uh, that is very difficult to do a sample survey. Ah. That uh, that uh, uh, technology is saving us because in other countries you would do this service now with tablet, so yeah. the interviewer would go with that. While in the DPRK, because of the embargo you would have to buy paper and I cannot even count how many kgs of papers we bought for this sample survey. So that mm. uh, things like the embargo are also having an impact on this. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that uh, people are actually interested in persons with disabilities. So when I gave this training I was mentioning, I was surprised by, by um, the fact that people would have questions for me the uh -huh. interviewers to be uh, so it was not just a passive things that they would do because they were obliged uh, I, I, I have to admit it was surprising for me to see the level of interest what was the sample size and, and where did your interviewers go um, you know, in the country to, uh, to ask the surveys so uh, the beginning was a three province the first sample survey was three provinces I only remember South Ham Yong I don't mm -hmm. remember the other two 
the second sample survey, the 2014 one, would include also Kangwon, which is interesting because, you know, Kangwon is also a region that is divided in two. So in yeah. a more global perspective, someday we could even do a comparison between the two parts of Kangwon. Mm, yeah. So uh, DPRK works very well in terms of um, how state and statal institutions are organized from the state to the province to the municipal level to the district. So there is really control, and we know it for the good and for the bad, on every single citizen. So persons were really named and, and, and interviewed individually. The sample survey uh, is, uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers here with me, but to uh -huh. be a sample survey, it was representative of the number of the population in each of the regions. Okay. So, the, so the sample was chosen by the, the department according, of the, according to the population of every district and region. Mm. That's fascinating. Um, now, in 2014, in, in that same year as the, uh, the second survey, there was also uh, the conclusions of the report of the Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the, uh, the COI. Some people would link that to, um, or some people have in the media linked that to uh, an increased focus on the rights of the people with disabilities in the DPRK. Uh, do, do you see any connection between the two? Um, I would say that sometimes when we, lead, we deal with countries like DPRK, the amount of information that we get is so little that we tend to create links between events where mm -hmm. events may not have any link. Uh -huh. uh, and we also some may overestimate the strategic capacity of the people and the state and the governments we are dealing with. So I, don't, I did not see any, any link because the sample survey was started, the process was started in 2012 and was funded by the European Union. So mm -hmm. from my perspective, I don't see the link, but maybe it was strategized so highly that they really made it match perfectly. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, you also, you wrote that you believe a better world is only possible if a radical shift in power shares takes place. And that's a, a very interesting idea, but how could that happen in the DPRK? What would be a what would a radical shift in power shares look like? I don't have the answer. Ah. <laughs> I um, for sure because on the law by the law in the constitution, DPRK is a highly representative system. So sometimes it is not at the legal framework that we need to look. But for example, uh, what was happening with the KFPD was really a radical shift. Mm. People that in the paper did not exist until 2000 were yeah. going to university, were able to go on the bus, uh, were able to receive an, an education and maybe to work. Because let's not forget that the first vocational training was organized by the KFPD internally without support of NGOs or pressure mm. from the European Union. So there was a, a shift in the mindset and maybe that's good. I think that sometimes it's difficult for us to see the changes because they are small. Yeah. Did, did that, the first vocational training you mentioned, did that focus on a particular type of vocation? Uh, so if I remember well, it was uh, people with hearing impairments uh, working on uh, repairing a uh, watch or a bicycle uh, mm. mechanic, uh, yeah. things of uh, precision in handicraft, yes. Uh, what were the effects of international sanctions on your work in the DPRK? Oh, that's, that's terrible, Jaco. Like mm. for me, I, I'm becoming the expert in the UN, in well, US or UN sanction against a country and in the effect in, on the humanitarian action. Uh, you know that Cuba is, uh, if possible, in a worse situation than DPRK because mm. it's an island. So on DPRK, like I'm appalled. There's, uh, it, that's, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry to say, but I'm outraged. It's a real breach of basic right to life of the people. We could not work, many of us could not work anymore. Many organizations cannot accept to take so many risks as it's needed in order to, 
to go beyond the EU, UN sanctions mm -hmm. uh, in order to keep working. Some organizations have left. Save the Children was the first one to leave. Uh, HI left, uh, DPRK. I'm afraid the same will happen in Cuba. And uh, meanwhile, these countries you know, will keep doing what they are doing. So my experience is that the embargo is really affecting the only ones who have no protections that are mm. the NGOs. So even the some of the earlier sanctions that focused on, uh, say, uh, luxury goods uh, or uh, dual use goods, would you say that they're also uh, they have a bad effect on people who are vulnerable? To my so when I joined HI in the DPRK, the level of sanctions was already very high because yeah. we were at 2000. You, you may remember in December 2012 there was the launch of the ballistic missile that that brought about the new sanctions mm. and these were not only limited to jewelry so i, I don't i don't have an answer to this yeah. i i can only talk about the sanction as they were inactive starting from 2013 okay do you still have contact with any of your partners in the dprk these days it's very difficult uh, for the reasons that we all know yeah segregation and lack of access to internet in general my only contact today is uh, with the one person in KFPD, which is based in Shenyang and is doing fundraising for the KFPD. Of course, we are not old friends, you know, we're not uh, exchanging secrets, right. but every now and then, and then a happy new year or a, a news about the family is possible and it's very welcome. I, I'm happy that we can do that. Do you have any idea how they're doing in the era of COVID-19? To my understanding, DPRK is closed. Yeah. So in these kind of countries, uh, what is la raison d'état uh, is uh, strongest than any need. So I suspect is not they are not doing very well. Uh, they are prioritizing needs. That's my suspect. Yeah. When you left the DPRK, that was in uh, was that in autumn of 2016. It was uh, 23rd July 2016. Okay, and when, when you left there, did you leave with a feeling of satisfaction or frustration or was it mixed? I left with the feeling, that's why my book is called The Blues. Uh, it's this melancholy, this nostalgia, because um, there, there were, it was so difficult to be there. And um, it was so frustrating at times but also so rewarding because every little success was a huge success for us. Yeah. So, uh, and every day I, ha I had the clear understanding that there would be no other day like that because the day you leave the PRK, unless you get a new mission there, you won't go back there, you know, to see mm. your friends uh, as a tourist. So it was, it was a never again. Every day was a never again. So yeah. when I left, the, this feeling of uh, perpetual loss yeah. was the strongest and and the i don't want to say it, the feeling of burnout but the feeling of being spaced out so it took me a while after four years of dprk to to go back to normality like don't feel that they are always spying on you don't mm -hmm. fear that something is checking on you and in fact i asked for two months leave yes. after my mission to dprk because it was difficult to revert to a system where you are nobody in a world where everybody mind their own business. Right. You know, I've spoken to uh, to British diplomats who uh, lived in, in the DPRK, and they, the advice that they received from the uh, British Foreign Office is uh, to always try to travel outside of the DPRK every uh, maximum every six months, you know, go to China, go somewhere to yeah. decompress. How, what was the longest single time that you stayed in the DPRK without leaving the country? So uh, this is a practice, a mental health practice yeah. that is used also in NGOs. We call it RNR. RNR, they spell it out rest and recovery, rest and relief, mm. something de depending on the NGO. So yeah. in, as for me, it was uh, the suggestion was one week every eight. Uh, or one week every maximum three months. Right. Because uh, also in the case of diplomats, they are a little bit more protected because they are in a house with generator, with hot water. Yeah. Um, they have free flow internet, etc., etc., etc. They come with containers, so their houses have 
are well equipped in case of humanitarian people it's not so easy let's say no uh, yeah so um in my my experience in dprk the longest i've stayed was i would say six months and it was too much mm, it was really, yeah. i was very tired when i left yes what was your housing situation like there I was living in the Monsudong, famous Monsudong uh, oh, area, okay. and yep. what we call the main compound. So I lived before in the Bulgarian compound, mm. which was funny because it was belonging to the Bulgarian government. So access of Koreans was limited. Yep. Uh, but the warming, the, the heating situation was not so good. And then I moved to the main compound, or otherwise called the pistachio building. Pistachio, is and, it for the uh, color? <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. So here there was a generator, so there was good. But uh, I would say that, uh, to my experience, uh, the worst situation was concerning uh, winter and uh, concerned lack of water or lack of hot water yeah. and voltage. So there was one winter, it was the winter of Ebola, 2015. Oh, yes. Where I was isolated, you know, I was in quarantine. Yeah, I think all the foreigners were, weren't they? Yeah, so mm. I was in quarantine for 42 days okay. in this winter, and the voltage was so low that the washing machine broke. Oh, no. The oven broke, the fridge broke. So it was really, really difficult to survive. Oh. I remember I was reading Gramsci diaries from jail <laughs> and he was saying, I keep doing exercise because otherwise I get depressed. Yes. And I was like, I really have to do exercise at least because there was so little in electricity that it was, it, was, uh, it was difficult. So that was the worst that I remember. Gosh. But also mm, there were long periods where everything was much better than the other the country where I've lived. Mm. So good electricity, good heating, hot water. And anyway, you know, in North Korea, foreigners can use their own car. They are free to move in Pyongyang. There was a lot of, there were a lot of things to do somehow, no? So actually my last year has been so difficult that sometimes I even miss, you know, the huge swimming pool I had access to in Pyongyang ah. or the walks river and so many other things that i was allowed to do do you uh do you have any final thoughts to leave us with about the the future of people with disabilities in uh, north korea maybe the last thought is uh, um let's not make this uh, not one more forgotten crisis or forgotten mm. need and uh, unfortunately the embargo is playing a huge role on this yeah yeah, well, that's a, a very important message to uh, to get out there. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the NK News podcast today, Carla Vitantonio. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks to you. It was really very, very insightful. Thank you, Jaco. Thank you. And do let me know if your book ever comes out in an English translation. Uh, we'll get you uh, to, uh, to come on and promote that. That, that would be fantastic. So there is one problem, Jaco, uh, that all the publishers I've contacted uh, don't translate me because, and their official answer is that on DPRK, they only translate British, US or ROK books. Huh. They are not interested in a book published by an Italian writer. Gosh. Uh, moreover, you know, I don't belong to the to the of usual scholars on DPRK, so mm. I'm not recommended. So uh, I have been refused already a couple of times uh, by publishers, and I, I don't think my editor is willing, you know, to to spend so much yeah. more time on this because all replies were the same. However, there is one chapter yes. that is translated that I think you can find on my LinkedIn, but I can also send it to you in the next days. Okay. Uh, that is uh, the chapter where I analyze the Arirang. So oh, the mass games. This I can send. Yes. Okay. Uh, and if I, in the meantime, if I find a publisher that might be a useful one for you, I'll let you know. Oh, that would be super, Jaco. Ah, and and, to and our if you read Spanish. <laughs> I, I, yes, sadly, exactly. I cannot. But if our, if our listeners have any ideas about uh, a, a good please. publisher, please send an email to podcast at nknews.org and I'll be sure to forward it on to Carla. And if you can read, uh, Italian, go online and uh, and find uh, Pyongyang Blues and uh, uh, and order it. Thank you very much, Jaco.
Thank you so much. And uh, also uh, a final thanks to uh, James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Don't forget to check out nknews.org. And if you already have an NK News account, consider subscribing to NK Pro. Uh, inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm -hmm.